Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. What we are going to start into is that letter A, the lands of Judah and Joseph. That is given to them between chapter 14 and 17. After this is over, we'll go back to the remaining seven tribes and describe what's going on. And then we'll finish up understanding these special cities. But where we're at today is understanding the differences between Judah and Joseph and why it's given this way. Because when we look at these lands and these allotments, we rightly ask the question, what is this here for? It's a lot of record. It's a lot of documentation. Why was this written down? Is it strictly for you know, some sort of historical reason or they needed this? What benefit is this to us? He includes this here so that we can understand something, though, that's not simply historical. We know better than that. You and I know that every word and every scripture is given for the sake of teaching, for us to train and understand who God is. And so as we look at this overall, we're trying to understand why would God include these things, and Joshua specifically in this text. Uh, In the second half of chapter 13, we did the first half of chapter 13 last week, 1 through 7, but in the second half, we see the allotment of the tribes east of the Jordan, which was Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh. He includes this here, not because it's new information. We've actually already seen this allotment. We saw it from Moses. We saw him do this. But because we need to see that this group, Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe Manasseh, as real, legitimate Israelites, they are a part of the whole. And it will be very easy as real, legitimate Israelites to see them as the whole and understand the commands of God. However, that dividing line of the Jordan seems to keep them away. And we'll realize later on that it's significant for us to see them as a whole. So what we're seeing at the end of chapter 13 isn't new. But it's meant to be put here so we understand it in the light of the whole. This will become important, especially as we get to chapter 22 later on, even in Joshua, and as the nation grows and settles into their new home. Now, as we get to chapters 14 through 17, we're going to see the allotment of two tribes, Judah and Joseph. Now, if, if you think about the 12 sons of Israel, or Jacob, you're not going to see in there Ephraim and Manasseh. That's because they're sons of Joseph. So make sure that's clear up front. You're going to hear me say Manasseh and Ephraim a lot over and over again. They are the sons of Joseph and are counted as that tribe. So what we're seeing in our text today is the breakdown of understanding the allotments from 14 to 17 of these two tribes, Judah and Joseph. Take a look down at these chapters. I kind of want you to scan over them for a moment. You're going to notice in chapter 14, 1 through 5, an introduction. It's going to set us off what's going on here. Then there's going to be a story about Caleb. Then we're going to have it pick up and they're going to go ahead and show all the different parts of the land at the beginning of chapter 15, explaining the boundaries, explaining the territories, the size and the scope of Judah's land they've been given. If you go on, you'll notice chapters 16 and 17, if you read your headings there, we're going to switch the allotment of the Joseph tribes, which is Manasseh and Ephraim. Then at the end of chapter 17, you'll see a report of how the tribe of Joseph came to talk to Joshua about their allotment. So, that's a lot of information. This is the content of 14 through 17. These four chapters, and it's easy for us to think of them as purely historical record. But again, we know better than that. 
we know that our author always has a theological agenda, even when he's recording simple things like boundaries. And he writes so that we might learn and be exhorted. Our task then, especially here in 2019, is to understand what he is trying to do with this material. Why did he include it? And why did he include it this way? I can remember as a child growing up, um, I don't know if you were like this or not, I had several tasks or chores to do uh, throughout my week. I don't know if any of you had those things, maybe you were spoiled and didn't have them, but I did. I had several chores I had to do throughout the week. Um, probably many of you had to clean up your room constantly. Probably many of you had to make your bed. Probably maybe some of you had to clean up the bathroom. I can remember all those things. I also had to take on Saturday mornings my sheets off my bed, take them to the laundry, and then in the afternoons I had to put them back on. I can remember I had to sweep the basement steps, so these old wooden steps all the way down to the basement, like a dungeon in the bottom, so we had to sweep them all off and make sure by the end I had them all picked up so that when you walked there with bare feet, it wasn't like all crunchy and weird. Um, I had to sweep the back porch, which was weird also. Some of you might remember this. It was like AstroTurf green on there, and uh, yeah, it was weird. It was very difficult to, to actually sweep. That was one of my jobs as well. Uh, but one of the tasks I disliked the most was I was in charge of taking out the compost. We had the trash bag. We also had a compost in the edge of the sink where all of the clippings and all the extra greens and the eggshells, coffee grounds, all that stuff would go right there. My job, though, although it wasn't necessarily hard, was to make sure that went out into the compost outside in the garden. Again, that doesn't sound very hard, but I felt like as a kid that the garden was like 1.3 miles away. <laughs> and I really hated it at nighttime. I mean, it was a little freaky. Um, you know, my short little legs getting out there. I mean, I, that's the fastest I learned to run, was to be able to go get back and forth between there. So I was, dis I was given the task of disposing of the compost. So that was my job. I didn't have to like it, but I did have to do it. So I did. But along the way, uh, I became convinced that there must be a better way to do this task. Um, there had to be an easier way for me to obey my mom and dad. There um, had to be a way in which I could obey, but it was not so difficult or scary, perhaps. There had to be a way that I could get past this. So um, I came up with another way to obey. Um, there were these big, overgrown juniper bushes all around our house, about four to five feet high, um, lots of coverage. And uh, we used to use these like, little forts. We would crawl in underneath and hang out there and think we were special. And then, or we'd use them for like hide and go seek. We'd be stuffed in there. But what we realized over time, I realized over time, was it was not only good at hiding people, but perhaps it would also be good for hiding compost. Um, and so one afternoon, I, when no one was around, I got my dad's shovel. I got back into these juniper bushes, and I dug myself a small hole in, in, underneath a couple of these juniper bushes, a perfect sp spot for compost to go. Um, I put it back. No one knew about it. After doing so, the task of obeying my parents became less scary and far more easy to do after digging these shallow graves for the compost. Um, all I had to do was make sure no one was around, go out the back porch, take a hard right behind the juniper bushes, and deposit these eggshells and leftover clippings, all that stuff for the, behind the juniper bushes. It was great. The plan worked very well. No one caught on to it. Not a problem. Everything worked well. And this seemed to be far more reasonable to my sensibilities of a way to obey my parents. One day I came home from school, and as I was getting off the bus in front of my house, I saw a terrifying sight. Um, so my dad and a friend were pulling out all of the juniper bushes from around our house. 
Uh, needless to say, I knew that my mode of obedience was going to be revealed and that my parents might not be as excited about my ingenuity as I was. My suspicions were correct. When they did this, they, uh, they found my little hole and uh, promptly reminded me that the job that they had asked me to do had not been done according to their requirements and specifications. And I, I did the job, I just did not do it correctly. Um, you see, to them, it mattered not only that I did the job, but it mattered to them how I did the job. In today's text, we're going to see, as the allotments are starting to be given out, we're going to see what happens between Judah and Joseph. We're going to get a lot of really good historical data here, territories, boundaries, technical documentation, where the lines are drawn, all this stuff. But our narrator, the person, this author, author here, Joshua, records these allotments in such a way that it makes us stop and consider how each tribe will take possession of God's allotment to them how they will obey. Today we will watch as God gives the new task of possessing the land to each tribe, specifically to Judah and Joseph. If, if you don't catch this, it's helpful. We slow way down. This is a new stage of obedience. Each tribe will do it. Eventually everyone's going to take an allotment. You'll see that throughout the rest of the book of Joshua. But today we'll watch as the author makes it very clear that not only does it matter that you do the job, but yet it matters to them how you do the job. I'm going to cut to the chase here and bring us right to the most important parts of this whole section, the beginning and the end. If you notice, at the beginning of chapter 14, we don't go right into specific words or territories. Chapter 14 through 17 are framed. They're framed with two stories. There are four overall within them, but the two in the middle we're not going to touch. I think it's far more important that we make sure we get the whole here. So we're going to spend a lot of time on chapter 14 and chapter 17. We're going to see the first story is the Caleb story. And at the end, we are going to see the story of the tribe of Joseph. Again, Ephraim and Manasseh. Our author is framing these allotments on purpose to show us examples of what it looks like for Israel to actually go in and take their possession tribe by tribe, the one that God is giving to them. Both of these tribes then act as examples. They're not just random. They're meant for us right at the beginning to see what it's supposed to look like, or as we'll learn later, what it's not supposed to look like. This is why we see the text slow way down here. We saw what was going on, all of a sudden we slow way down and describe these two in great amounts of detail. Because if you look past this, you're going to see the rest of the seven, you're going to see very brief, boop, 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 very small amounts of information about their allotment. But these ones, we get a ton of information what's going on. And again, they're surrounded by these stories. And so it's important for us to see that he's making a point to teach us that simply getting your allotment and living in the land is not enough. He is teaching us how to take possession of the allotment, and it's important for this way to be a certain way before their covenant-keeping God, Yahweh. So this is what I want you to do. Take a look at 14, and we'll look at chapters 14, 6 through 15. We'll start. This is the story of Caleb and how he approached Joshua with the requests concerning his allotment. Verse 6, Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the, Je the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me to Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. 
And I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old, I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, this day, because he wholly followed the Lord, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. So before the technical allotment of Judah begins, before we get a bunch of different territories, our author starts off with this story about Caleb. Why? Because Caleb is a representative of how Judah will possess their allotment. He is a picture of what proper possession looks like. I want you to notice a few things in this text here. Caleb tells his own story of faith at the beginning. Take a look there. He is showing this faithfully going in, spying out the land, and bringing back a good report, a faithful report, one that actually trusted God. Caleb said along the way, we can do this. God has given it to us. Let us go into this place. Although his brothers were afraid and turned away from the difficult task of going in and overcoming the Anakim. And then he relates to the rest of what happened. He goes and reminds Joshua and saying, hey, Moses promised to me the land that I walked on. Moses said that because my heart had followed wholly the Lord, that that land would be my inheritance. And here we find Caleb saying, God has kept me alive. Here I am. I'm ready. Not only that, I am physically strong and able and ready for battle. So give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. I'm ready to take my inheritance. Notice also that Caleb knows that uh, this is not going to be an easy task. This is not something that will be a walk in the park. He mentions it. It's full of the Anakim. These are those giant enemies that made all his brothers, the other ten spies, turn back because it was so scary. They looked like grasshoppers in their sight. This land is full of Anakim, the giants, with their fortified cities in verse 12. But that doesn't stop Caleb. Why? This is why. He continues on in verse 12. Read this. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Later we find that Caleb has conquered this land, including this little detail about Kiriath Arba, the, the one that housed the greatest man among the Anakim, the giant enemies. He took that one. The one that made those 10 spies turn around and say, we should not go into this land. We are fearful. There's no way we'll make it. Joshua goes in and he takes that land from those Anakim. 
so that he is the one that owns this. Not only that, in chapter 15, you'll see that he drove out the three sons of Anak and all the peoples of that territory. I mean, Caleb recounts the promises of the Lord through Moses and asks him boldly for the inheritance in the face of frightening and powerful enemies that could seemingly overcome an 85-year-old. And he roots all of this in the confidence that God said in his promise that he would go before them and that he would drive out these peoples. And he goes into the land then ready to take possession of what God told him he would give to him. Now, many of us think, wow, Caleb is the man. I mean, he's 85 years old and ready to rid the land of God's, uh, all these enemies. I mean, he must have been something special, I mean, compared to us. Or many of us will also think Caleb was a real optimist. Like he had a cheery disposition, ready to go in here and be happy-go-lucky. We're going to get this thing done, fellas. Like kind of like the attitude like, you know, who knows? Something good might happen out of this. Let's just go try it. But if we think that Caleb is an optimist in our text here, we've missed the point. Our author highlights one key characteristic of Caleb's life. If you notice, you saw, he said it three times, verse 8, verse 19, and verse 14. We learned, by God's grace, he was a man that wholly followed the Lord, his God. The tribe of Judah is given the task to occupy and possess this land. They do it. They obey. But how do they do it? How do they obey? Caleb shows us how they are to obey as one who wholly follows the Lord, and this is the right way to do it. The author sort of kind of puts his stamp on this at the end. Did you notice that? He says, and the land had rest from war. We've heard that before. At the end of chapter 12, after the end of all of Joshua has done, he has the same thing said of him. The land had rest from war. By using the same phrase, that we saw used for describing Joshua's work in the conquest, he makes it clear that Caleb has done that what he was supposed to do in obeying and possessing and taking his inheritance. It's like the author is saying, this is what possessing your allotment is supposed to look like. Proper obedience that recounts God's promises, that relies on him to go before you, and engages wholeheartedly in specific tasks that he's given to you is what it looks like. This is how one is to obey and take possession of the land. But the author doesn't leave us here without any references to the possible pitfalls that we will all struggle with. And he knows that the rest of the nation will struggle with. He knows that they still have to drive out the inhabitants and possess this territory. And that like for Caleb, this was not a walk in the park. This would be difficult. Our author writes out the allotment of Judah. Then he pushes us into understanding the allotment of Joseph in chapter 16 and 17. As he does this, he gives us these little hints that the allotment of Joseph isn't so neat and tidy as Judah. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. If you look at Judah compared to every other allotment, it is tight. It is comprehensive. It is large. There's so many different things that show us that it is done correctly. And even as we move into Joseph, everything becomes a little bit looser a little bit less clear, almost fuzzy. Even some of these allotments seem to lie outside of the region that they've described in some of these cities. And so it begins to look like the ones who did the possessing. The list seems less comprehensive. and It seems a lot more problems happen with the tribes being able to drive out the Canaanites. 
Flip over to chapter 17. I want us to start in verse 14. We are going to see now that the other bookend here, this little section to us, this is the story of the tribe of Joseph and how they approached Joshua with requests concerning their allotment. Let's read verse 14. So 17, verse 14. Then the, tri- the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to him, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, Uh, The hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those of Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders." For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. In this story, after the technical allotment of all of this land, Joseph is finished up here in chapter 16 and 17. Our author ends the allotment with a story about Joseph and their inheritance and what they're asking for to Joshua. Why? Remember, this is a bookend. Almost like a mirror. We've seen something like this before. Why? Because in this meeting of Joshua and the Josephites, Their attitude toward how they will possess the allotment is revealed. What we're seeing is they're a picture of what proper possession does not look like. Let's see and take a look here. A few key things I want you to notice. The tribe of Joseph comes to Joshua, not recounting a promise from God, but instead a complaint. It may seem noble, but they come to this complaint. They say, why have you given me but one lot, one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? Now, now you and I may think, oh, good, these guys are asking for more land. You know, they're more inheritance, more opportunity to see God display his glory against these Canaanites. But this is not what the tribe is thinking at all. They say, why don't you give us more? I mean, everyone knows that we have great numbers. We're a huge clan. We have literally two that we talk about, Ephraim and Manasseh. We have tons of people. And you know what? God has called us his blessed ones. And we've seen it happen before. So maybe you should just obviously give us his territory. The tribe of Joseph pleads their case, not on the promises of God, but on the promises are actually on the case of numbers, that they have a lot of people among them. And their so-called blessed status Joshua, you can kind of see him as a leader, almost scrunch his face up and say, uh, okay, if you have this numerous amount of people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves. That's the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim. And since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you, go up to that place and get rid of these Canaanites too so that you can have a greater possession. Like kind of almost like, duh, go do it. It's given to you. You want more? Go get it. Joshua basically puts it back on them saying, sure, go get more land. Go clear out the forest and go get these Canaanites out of that territory and claim it as your own. That will be your inheritance too. But this isn't exactly what the tribe of Joseph had in mind. They were not looking for more work. They were not looking to go into the forest and clear a spot out or fight more Canaanites. 
In verse 16, the Josephites betray their real reason for asking for another allotment. They say, yes, the area you give us, the hill country, is not enough for us. And there is this one other thing. All the Canaanites who live in our territory have chariots of iron. I mean, you can almost hear them whine a little bit. Like, don't you realize, like, where you told us to go has a bunch of big bullies in it. Like, we can't handle all this. Like, why won't you just give, you should just give us another allotment, because we're blessed, because we're a numerous people. That just makes sense here. Basically, the tribes of Joseph are saying, of Joseph are saying, the allotment that you gave to us is too hard to possess. We are not really willing to engage in the fight, and these tough Canaanites are too much for us. They're difficult to overcome, and we kind of deserve something easier. The problem that the tribe of Joseph faces is their own laziness and fear. They lack initiative, they lack confidence, and there's no mention of God in the whole text. The truth is that they look a lot like the ten spies that went into the land, who turn around and say, do not go in there. Let's make our, our fellow countrymen's hearts melt because we should not be in there. That's a bad place to be. You see that they look a lot like them when they saw the Anakim and turned back, unbelieving and reported to Israel they should not go in and conquer this. The tribe of Joseph is not pessimistic. We're not seeing pessimistic versus optimistic. They're unbelieving. It's the same problem we had back in Numbers 13 and 14. When these came back with a bad report, which meant they don't trust God which they said, let's turn away from this promised land. We should not go in there. Joseph shows us here what not to do. They're described as a group that feels entitled to a comfortable allotment, one that requires obedience, they're fine with that, but not a difficult obedience. One that requires action, but not a not dangerous action. Joshua shows us that this kind of obedience is not acceptable for the tribe of Israel. Now, I can see him looking back at them with a stern look and ready. Will he give them a different allotment? Look at what he says. He responds to them. You are a numerous people, and you have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Joshua doesn't allow this type of behavior, but rightly pushes back with the proper mode of obedience. How they obey does matter. Take the commands of the Lord seriously and do the task that God called you to do. As we exit this section, we, as the perceptive reader, being able to read this whole thing, can clearly see the difference between Joseph and Judah. We can see them together. The tribe of Joseph does not remember or recount the promises of God, but bases their reasoning instead on human statistics, on numbers, and their so-called blessed status. They do not believe that God will go before them and drive out the people in their territory. Instead, they ask for a different territory. They do not engage and take initiative and take the task on, but rather they look to skirt around the obedience that God commands for them. They want to do it a different way. They wish to obey him on their own terms. It could be summed up kind of succinctly by saying this. They did not wholly follow the Lord their God. The exact opposite of what had been true of Caleb. 
As a child, I, I made a similar choice. I told you this before. I chose to obey my, on my own terms, to hide this you know, compost behind the juniper bushes. And I obeyed, or so I thought. But I eventually learned that the way in which I obeyed mattered a great deal. Taking the compost behind the juniper bushes may have seemed easier and less scary, uh, but it was not what my parents asked me to do. Just doing what my parents asked was not enough, making it happen my own way. I had to do it in their way. I needed to do what they told me to do. We learn a similar lesson here from this section in Joshua. The way these allotments are going to be taken is really important. The how matters. There was a proper way for Israel to take these, the possession of their inheritance. And Caleb shows us how. How are they to obey? Number one, they must obey recounting God's promises. We saw him do this to tell the truth of what happened to him before and the allotment that God had given to him. Second, they must obey by relying on God alone to go before them and give them success. And they must obey by actually simply going and doing it. At some point, they need to go and obey the commands of the Lord. They had to fight. They had to engage. They had to plan and strategize. They had to work at possessing this inheritance. We're learning that the how matters a great deal. And Caleb gives us an example of how to obey in this task of land possession. So the question for us is this. What does this matter for us? What, what do we learn from him doing this? This is the right way to do it, obviously. The people of Israel post these two, like, okay, that's the way that we're supposed to possess. What do we learn? Last week, we talked about the changes in each stage of life. We talked about this, this obedience that comes to us may be new. Perhaps we have new responsibilities at our job. Perhaps we completely change jobs. Perhaps our family status changes. Perhaps we get married or a spouse dies or we have more children or you start a stay-at-home mom. These different stages and there are new things that God brings along in your life that are God-wrought and they're new stages of obedience. And that none of them are lesser than other calls and that we must obey in each stages of life. But here, we're learning a new lesson. This week, we learn that the calls to obedience are not calls to obey in the ways that we want to. We don't get to make up the way that we obey God. And as though that if we just complete the task, that'll be enough. The how matters a great deal to our Lord. Now, you and I may not be driving out or taking possession of these cities and lands, but he has called you and I to a task, probably several different tasks. Each tribe had a different allotment of territory. They all looked different. They all had different topography. They had different people within those lands. And they're all called to utilize the resources that God had given them to go in and possess. Each of us also are called to different types of obedience. Not one of us is the same. Each have different family situations. Each have different working situations. Each have different sufferings that they have gone through. And I'll tell you this, again, that those are God-wrought. These situations that God has placed us in, he calls us to obey in each one of them. We are called to walk with him through each one of these places, to live as living sacrifices, to live in accordance and walk by the Spirit. I'll remind that does look different for each one of us, so I can't give one application only. Each one is different for us, but the task is still the same, that we would obey in the way that he has taught us to do so. Just getting through as a Christian is not enough. Just getting to church and being numbered with the saints 
is not the characteristics of a faithful believer only. The how matters a great deal to our Lord. He cares how we obey him. And whatever task of obedience God has given to you, you and I are to do it as unto the Lord on his terms. I'll use the things that Caleb already taught us. How do we obey? Here's three simple thoughts. How do you obey the things that God has given to you today? Base it on the promises of God. Trusting all that he has said would be true for you. Fighting sin because you know he has promised that he will overcome. How about as Caleb did, relying on him in the midst of it for success. Knowing that God will go before you. Knowing that you actually have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. The third thing, you need to obey. You need to act in obedience. You need to just do it. It's important that we see that this is after, coming after trusting him, following him, having him go before us, and knowing there's a time for obeying, that we need to put our hand to the plow and obey. This means preaching the gospel to ourselves. This means preaching Christ to each other as we sing, as we talk through different conversations, as we pray for each other. We remind ourselves of the promises that God has given to us. And especially as New Testament believers, as what we know what we have in Jesus Christ, as we are in him and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the promises that we have are astounding. We must remind each other, brothers and sisters, of those promises, knowing that he will conquer. This means walking in the Spirit, daily trusting him in each circumstance of life. Whether that looks like success to you or the world or not, we must trust him and walk with him. This means daily walking in obedience to our gracious and loving Lord. Brothers and sisters, let us take our obedience seriously and let us perform then these things in accordance with his gracious plan and his loving care for us so that ultimately in all of this none of us receive glory but rather our Lord Jesus Christ will receive all glory as King. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this message from my own heart. Lord, I I tend to be like those of Joseph, who feel entitled, who feel like I deserve something better, easier, less scary, something that has less suffering, something that I like, something that I enjoy. God, you may give us an obedience that is not so fun, doesn't seem so glorious. Lord, would you teach us to do so in faith, remembering your promises, relying completely on you to do that which you said you would do, and acting in obedience. God, we need your help. We need faith to believe that this is true. All the world around us shows us otherwise seemingly that to do so would be foolish. Lord, we take your commands seriously and may we follow our brother Caleb as we trust you and move forward in obedience. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.